0: At its 2002 symposium, Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation invited Vice President and Managing Director of the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, Rob Marks, to moderate a talk with accomplished director and producer, Hal Prince. This conversation with a true master gives incredible insight into the history and current innovation in musical theater. Hello. Hello. I'm SDC director choreographer Edie Cowan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast.
1: Thank you all for coming this evening. My name is Joe Malosha. I am the Executive Director of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation. Uh, This is our annual directing symposium This year, for the first time, it's a musical theater symposium, and we're especially thrilled because also for the first time, we are able to address the issues of directors and choreographers. I'd like to thank our sponsors for the evening. Uh, Our major sponsor is the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, and our additional sponsors are NISCA, the New York State Council on the Arts, uh, the DCA, the New York Department of Cultural Affairs, and (coughs) SSDC, the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers. But without further ado, I know you're here to see Rob Mark. There's certainly no need for a personal introduction to, to Hal. As Barbara said, if you don't know who he is, you don't belong here. But uh, just to, to add a word, Hal, aside from all of his work as a producer and a director, um, Hal's also really an incredible theater citizen. Think of all the people I know in this business, this is the guy who is the most committed, the most caring, the most honest and respectful of what everybody in this industry does and the conditions that they face in doing their work day in and day out. He is really a remarkable citizen. It's always a pleasure for me to spend some time with him. Um, Over the 90 minutes that we have, we're going to focus really on, on two issues, the making of musicals and Hal's very personal take on that and his perpetual encouragement of young talent and what talent needs as it enters into this industry and one hopes thrives. So we're going to talk for about a half hour, maybe a little less, and then we're going to open it up to questions. We really want this to be a dialogue with all of you. So um, we hope the first part will be stimulating. Think about what you want to ask how, And uh, Hal just said, actually, wanted to make a brief statement at the start. Very brief, but I,
2: I, I thought I asked where you'd all come from, and I'm told that uh, some of you have just graduated and some of you were in graduate school and some of you were neither but that, that those two categories take care of the greater number of you and I, I just wanted to say the following I, I was uh, I was not privy to a, a theater uh, education either on a college level or uh, on a graduate level uh, but I was uh, to, uh, an education, and a good liberal arts education. And and so, uh, just maybe it would be a good idea for you to know that where I come from is the following. Uh, I think that uh, half the game is knowing the nuts and bolts, learning the craft. Uh, maybe there are three halves of this game, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a- another one would be... Uh, having the courage to express yourself and perhaps go somewhere that you haven't seen anybody else go, or at least, I don't think there's anything much new in the world, but can be new to you and new to your audience. Uh, that, that would be the other half, but there's a third half, and the, uh, the third half is, in my estimation, uh, an, a healthy regard for information and experience and it seems to me one of the problems with this time in our society and it's a global experience uh... there is not sufficient respect for the amount of information you should gather the amount of experience you should keep uh... experiencing and assimilating and uh, the amount of travel you ought to do. You need to be a good director and choreographer. As far as I'm concerned, a lot of information, a lot of experience, a lot to draw from. The two greatest choreographers in my lifetime were of Agnes DeMillen and Jerry Robbins. I'm talking theater choreographers. What set them apart from the other choreographers was a a healthy respect for the gathering of information, almost bordering on the pretentious. I think I should tell you right now, I've never done a show I really respected that at some point along the journey, I didn't turn to my wife and say, my God, this is pretentious. And then I smile because that's good news. You know? So I mean, basically, I think it's it's probably a good idea to aspire to more than you aspired to the last time. Doesn't happen that often, but every once in a while it does happen, and and, and every once in a while you fly blind. But I think there is today a uh, a sense on the part of of younger aspirant artists. That the thing, the deal is, uh, learn your craft good uh, when they want to express it, and uh, and be famous. <laughs> and it that bothers me plenty, uh, because uh, I really think you have to make all the steps. How long it takes you to take the steps and make the journey is uh you're doing and and luck's uh uh doing uh, there's a lot of luck involved in in a career anywhere but in the arts certainly being at the right at the right place at the right time but also recognizing luck when it's staring you in the face uh, i can tell you i've been around a long time it's getting under 50 years that i've been working and uh, I can tell you that I have seen countless examples of wonderful young artists who look at luck and bypass it for one or another uh, trivial reasons. Uh, if you're an actor, you worry about your dressing room or the size of your building, of that extra $25 a week salary. When it's the la- Those are the last factors you should be worrying about on that journey. Uh, If you're a a director or choreographer assisting somebody, you worry about the fact that something they take credit for was your idea. Uh, Too bad. (laughs) You'll get your time to get credit for your idea. But all those petty things have terrible resonance, and you have to be infernally practical and selfish, that's the word, you really have to be selfish to recognize uh, your good fortune when it comes. The real kind of selfish. And you have to be selfish to keep your mouth shut and go for the real prize. And you have to be selfish in acquiring information and experience. Those, those are forms of selfishness. And they're a hell of a lot deeper and more enriching than, uh, than what most people equate with selfishness. So really, I I only wanted to say this much, because I really wanted you to know where I come from. I don't know how I feel about a formal education. Uh, Based on my own experience, I think the best education is experience. The best education is on the job practice. The best experience is being in a mentoring or mentorship relationship. With someone you really respect who's good that's the best I acknowledge however that as I told you I've been around a long time and there were far many more people from whom to study from whom to to learn when I started in the theater when I started the theater were probably 15 to 20 directors of the first caliber there were 15 or 20 producers Presenting a show a year, and each show that they presented had their imprimatur. Today, I defy you to tell me who produced what, because it's all about money, and and so there is no identification between a producer and the work that bears his name. Twenty-four producers on the Crucible, and, and on the Crucible, it was it was uh, horrifying to me. Twenty-four. Uh, 24 producers over the title. I I secretly wish they'd win the Tony Award because I wanted to see half of Radio City make its way to the stage. You know? But I mean, basically, it's a it's a bad situation. Uh, anyway, I I just really want to know, wanted you to know where I come from. That does not mean, and I think I better clear this up. Whereas I, there were so many potent roads from which to learn the craft and, and in, internet or what network, mm-hmm. uh, so many of those are, have been cut off by the nature of the business, the nature of the business having changed primarily because of costs. Costs have eliminated so many creative minds, largely uh, creative producers, and a creative producer is someone he really is shakespeare's patron or uh, or tchaikovsky's patron or whatever uh, those are what producers were when i went into theater and i think it's what i was as a producer it's a long time ago and now uh you have people with big bucks who don't really in many instances uh know what the responsibility of being creative is or care They figure if i put up a million dollars that should be enough and i want my name over the title and i want to run that risk that maybe i'll get to go up on the stage at radio city next year it's not good enough but it is the prevailing standard today so uh having said that what i wanted i i never want to read what i say because the syntax really sucked <laughs> but, but let me say this i i know that something has to have taken the place of mentorship and on the job experience for those of you who don't know my mentor was a man who was 42 years older than i it was george abbott he was one of the busiest men in the theater and he had a career which lasted 75 years and he died at 107 And he had his last hit on Broadway at 93. Not a bad thing to aspire to. And Sondheim, one of my closest collaborators, mentor, was Oscar Hammerstein. No more need be said. So you know where we got to learn. Those opportunities are fewer and fewer and fewer. So I would hope that universities and postgraduate schools have taken up some of that slack but I'm most sure that experience, on-the-job experience, needs to take up the rest of it. And how you find that, there are more opportunities now than there used to be, certainly, in the regional theater, not the profit theater, and so on. That, that's sort of to give you an idea of where I am, and okay. it's all yours. Um, we're going to get back pretty quickly
1: to a lot of the points that you, you just raised. Um, but I want to start really with your own work and your own career. When you first take on a musical, how do you begin preparing for it?
2: Well, it starts with the idea. Uh, I think you should know that with the exception of Life is Like a Train, (laughs) there is, in my memory, no musical I ever did that was brought to me largely finished. I was bored out of my mind and dying to do something and didn't have it. So Comden and Green and Cy Coleman brought me on the 20th century, and I did it. But that's the unique experience in a rather long career. And is uh, it usually the material or the collaborators who excite you in those situations? Usually, uh, well, that varies. Uh, there's someone you love working with. Uh, I can pick up the phone, and this is a show that never gets mentioned when someone says, and he has, and he did. But one of one of the best jobs I ever did, one of the shows I love more than anything is, is Kiss of the Spider Woman, because it was total. And that's a phone call from Fred Ed saying, John and I have, have an idea for a musical, we'll spill it over the phone if you're interested, tell us, and said, Kiss of the Spider Woman and I'd seen the movie, not read the play or the, uh, not, uh, the novel. And I said, I'll be right over, and that was the beginning of that. So uh, that can be your collaborators. However, it's your collaborators in conjunction with an idea that you think is, is uh, quintessentially a musical material. The other is an idea. You can get an idea, and you never know when you're going to get an idea. I mean, you really need to be open, and you never know. But uh, probably one of the more dramatic ideas is that uh, Steve Sonheim called me and said, I have a friend, and I think he's in trouble. He's written a play... And Kim Stanley, who was arguably the best actor, American actress of her generation, I certainly think so, uh, uh, wants to play the lead. Uh, but there's something wrong with this project. Will you read it? And he sent over seven one-act plays from a fellow named George Firth. And and, and Kim Stanley was going to play in all seven. And I read them, and I thought, this is George Firth fellow who... I seem to be the only person in the theater who didn't know it because everybody else knew. But what a writer and what an actor, and, uh, but what a wonderful writer. And I read the seven plays and I thought they're all wonderful, but actually all I can see is that poor lady running off stage <laughs> and changing her makeup, her costume, her wig and running on again. And I have a terrible fear that if I were to see these very clever plays, that's all I would see, it was the offstage activity. Now that's a bit of a reaction from somebody who works in the theater, but it's saying something about the trickery of it, rather than the substance of it. And I I read them, and I called Steve, and I said, well, I don't know uh, how much it's going to surprise you or your friend, But I think there's a musical in this. You're kidding. No, I don't mean all seven. I mean two or three of them, maybe four of them. But I think there's a musical. And so he said, well, let's have a a meeting. And a few days later, they came to the office. And company came out of that. And we saved three of the seven plays. And he wrote another play. And, uh, and, And what was the key that connected the plays we saved and the play that was created? Uh, very simply it seemed to be an evening about the definition of a good relationship, of marriage and someone who couldn't commit the someone who couldn't commit wasn't in the shows but he seemed to be begging to thread his way through the evening and uh, company emerged it's a very unusual musical Steve said, I cannot I cannot rend these plays that we've chosen. I cannot interrupt them. I have to observe them, and that's what this score is going to be about. People from the outside looking in, but but I can't disturb the rhythm of these plays. And I said, okay, so look from the outside. And so what resulted was an incredibly unique uh, score. And the audience appreciated it, and people got it, and a, a pretty damn unique show grew from it. Now, this is a great example of a director
1: getting a writer to completely reinvent his work, reinvent his concepts on the page. And there must have been a lot of moments in the course of company where the writer held back or was still committed to certain concepts that had been with him from the time he had conceived <laughs> the show. How did you, as a director,
2: Sustain a productive relationship in a case like that. Uh, If uh, I think I should tell you right now, I don't remember anything. So doing an interview is not easy. Uh, uh, I try to put whatever happened back there somewhere and and move on. Uh, I don't really remember that there was any there were any uh, crises during the writing of that show. Do you? No.
1: <laughs> Since I wasn't there. Except in the audience. I thought maybe you'd heard
2: something no, and you were
1: going to you know, remind me. But let me reshape the question again. <laughs> right. And then I was going to tell you it never happened. Right. <laughs> um right. Let's generalize it then. In terms of a director of musicals working with the writers. Where the writer assumes the collaboration is going to be about a certain concept. And then you as the director realize this is changing the needs of the material, the needs of the cast, the needs of what we're communicating is taking us in a different direction. What do you do?
2: I think <laughs> it's called collaboration. And it's gotten a lot easier for me. You'll be shocked to know for the last 20 years it's easier than it was the first 20, but it is. And uh, and uh, I think I appreciate that. But. I've always chosen collaborators. I have failed on very few occasions, but believe me, I have failed. I have gotten involved with people who did not understand where I came from and were uh, either niggardly or, or uh, uh, unwilling.
1: Did, did someone fall
2: back there? No. Was it a light? It's a light. Oh, it's a light. Okay. happened the other night in the theater and the whole audience just left a- and I thought wow I haven't heard that in years I just heard it <laughs> again what I'm really saying people unwilling to to collaborate the theater is a place by the way where every once in a while you find yourself with someone who is unwilling to collaborate a player a, a playwright of non-musicals who thinks I'd love to do a musical but really can't bear the idea that it's a massive collaboration uh, that happens. Uh, what you need to do is pick your collaborators carefully. Do you know in front? No, you don't. But I'll tell you one thing that ensures it, and I I found that uh, by osmosis. I, after all, apprenticed to a man, I told you, 42 years older than I. Uh, he was the two-ton gorilla. A very nice and, and encouraging, two-ton gorilla, but nonetheless a man had been around a long, long time. Uh, I was the eager kid, and though I disagreed with him, uh, I kept it to myself or operated on it diplomatically. What I guess I'm, I'm trying to say is I made my career with young composers and lyricists and librettists almost exclusively. And if I were to be absolutely honest, on the occasion, and why not? There's no one here is going to repeat. Uh, <laughs> right. Almost every... Speak into the water bottle. <laughs> almost everyone I worked with, I, I, I did the first show with uh, uh, Bach and Harnick, and, and the uh, the second show with Candor uh, with, uh, and Ab. really. No, they're first together. I introduced them, so... But I didn't direct until their second show, uh, which was Cabaret. I uh, I worked with Steve very early in his career, his, his first Broadway credit. Uh, uh, it's it's a good role to be in, and I was their contemporary, so uh, the collaboration was by definition instantly open and fueled by enthusiasm and dreaming of the future. On rare occasions, I have worked with veterans who had been around as long or longer than I, and it can pose problems. The one thing you don't want, and hence you don't want to do when you become a veteran, is say, oh, I did it that way before, and I promise you it works. Devilish, bad, really bad but I haven't really been privy to that much. Mostly it's been new, all we new guys going at it together early on in our lives. And uh, George Abbott told me that. I think this is worth telling you. Again, I wasn't as clear that that's what I was learning, but it was obvious. I went to work for a man who had given... First jobs to Jerry Robbins, Leonard Bernstein, Comden and Green, uh, Garson Canan and me, and a whole lot of other people. But those are the names that quickly come to mind. Uh, I think it was a very happy way for him to work, but I think something else. I think <coughs> I think he thought or knew. That as you get older, and remember, he was older than all these people. As you get older, you, ha- you have the craft, you have the experience, you have knowledge. They have a contemporary, a co- contemporaneity, is that the word yes, I can't sir. pronounce it? Of a, a present taste, of you, of now, which you could lose sight of. You don't could lose sight of it. You do lose sight of it. And I think the terrible moment that I face is a moment when I really don't understand what's going on around me. At the moment, there are things I absolutely don't understand, like contemporary music, a lot of the, you know, hip-hop. Everybody has it, the Grammy Awards. What? Who are these people? And I don't, I don't get it. And, and what I live in <laughs> dread of is a moment when I don't get anything. Uh, 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 but it 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 hasn't happened yet however I learned from him to protect it by keeping my collaborators much younger than I not all of them some of them can be a designer can be a choreographer be a book writer whatever it is be damn sure that there's somebody there whose voice reflects today And that person you have a good bargain going you can teach that person what you know and that person can teach you what he knows and sees right now there's
1: an interview with abbott where he says always work with talented young people and avoid stars whenever
2: possible (laughs) stars it's a question you just asked a question (laughs) uh, and you knew it (laughs) stars stars are great they're stars not always and less today than in the old days. In the old days, stars were stars because they were talented, and they came up to bat over and over and over again and hit it out of the park. Uh, stars today are an ephemeral deal, and they have to do with, with uh, a whispering on television or on the screen and not really knowing what they're doing, but having a certain visual charisma but in the old days, they really had to deliver because the stage was paramount. stage is no longer paramount. Uh, movies are. And, and, uh, and television. The stage is, is the poor uh, sister. Uh, and, and, and so basically, uh, what we had in the old, day, old days was uh, hugely gifted people. What we also had in the old days and have to this day right now is stars who are bankable and who are, are uh, misplaced in roles. That's a terrible trap. Uh, somebody will tell you with so-and-so you'll get a huge advance. Well, one day the advance will go away and, you, and you're and left, left with the wrong person in, in the role. What stars are, if they are Angela Lansbury, are people who are as Incredibly gifted as any other actors walking the earth. They also happen, if you're Angela Lansbury, to be incredibly disciplined uh, and collaborative. So it's a dream. So I really respect stars, but my definition of what a star really is would be somebody hugely talented who has been celebrated for the talent Uh, they're fewer than they used to be, because there are fewer demands for them. But I don't have anything against them. I have against, against them using them for the wrong reasons. In issues like that,
1: how has the relationship between directors and producers changed? For a good part of your career, you produced your own work. Then you stopped producing, continued directing, very, very high, very creative level. But other people were producing those shows. Which meant that there was the potential for disagreement that you didn't
2: have earlier. How did you deal with it? If you look at the record, it's very clear. Uh, I've looked at the record actually. Uh, uh, I produced because I found myself producing for George Abbott. That was seen to be my way to get into the business, into a position of some importance. Uh, but it was a very good idea because I really always wanted to be a director. Uh, and, uh, and I hired myself. <laughs> Takes a lot of guts. And I did hire myself, and the very first show I did was She Loves Me. That's the first show I did from scratch. And it had Barbara Cook, Barbara Baxley, Dan Massey, and Jack Cassidy. And I had never directed a musical or anything else anybody had ever seen. I did some stock. And so, uh, but I was a very, already rather, you know, respected producer. I was, what, uh, 33. So basically what happened was they fought me on every, every decision I made. Every single thing they challenged. And I was stubborn. I may not have known how to achieve the effects I wanted, but I had taste. I'm back to that whole taste thing. I knew I had taste, and I knew that if I could somehow or other work this up to that stage, it would work. And the best way to do that is to collaborate with brilliant actors, all four of them brilliant, who can achieve that, but how to get them to. So that was the exercise for me, because I couldn't say, I didn't know what I know now. God knows I didn't know, but I knew the end result, and they came along with me, and it worked. And then from then on, I kept learning and learning and learning. Uh, I did not stop producing my own shows until the cost of doing shows escalated to a place where I thought, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. What I had done was build up 175 loyal investors, each with a 1,000 or 2 in the show. Together, they... Gave me two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars to play with. No one had an opinion that they shared with me of what we'd done. Not two hundred fifty thousand a piece, collectively. 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 Oh, thank you, Sintel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Collectively, a thousand bucks. We had people with five hundred dollars in the show, and we had people with five thousand. I think the five thousand dollar investor was, you know, huge for us. And and I do the show, send their money back and more often than not, send back a a healthy profit. So they stayed with me for years and years. But every five years, the costs went up uh, until shows started to cost millions and millions. And then I thought, you can't do that with these people because at $1,000 a punch, you know, you'll have a million in bed, <laughs> and that's not going to happen. So basically, really, what happened was I decided to let other people find the money. Uh, but there was a cost to it, and, and where suddenly there were, I was working for six or eight producers. I think I should point out it only that condition only lasted for a couple of shows. Only for a couple of shows did. There were eight producers and eight producers, wives or lovers, and eight producers' children. You got all these opinions. And I thought, I'm going nuts here, and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. They may be right, the show may stink, but the truth is they don't know how to fix it. And and it's just driving me right out of the theater. So I went to London. London felt, this is called luck. London came on the scene, and I got asked to do a Vita with uh, one producer and uh, two actually Stigwood and Lloyd Webber but Stigwood was the major producer and I did a Vita and he gave me my head and it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life both creatively and in every way as a collaboration and the show worked and then a few years later I got uh, uh, what's it called Phantom of the god <laughs> But in between, I met a Canadian uh, named Garth Dravinsky. And you all, or a lot of you, know who he is. He's a guy who got into a whole lot of trouble. But I feel this is as good a time as any to tell you he was a creative producer. And he was singular. And he loved what I could do based on my past record. And he financed Kiss of the Spider Woman. And he financed Showboat. He badgered me into doing Showboat because I don't do revivals, and changing showboat. And he back-parade, and, he back parade, and he, in other words, he was there, and he was amazing. Whatever troubles he got into, I regret in a way I can't tell you, because his loss to the American theater is uncalculable. He was that much of a creative and passionate and extraordinary fellow. So what I really did was from Avida on to right now, I worked for a, a individual or dual producers in partnership, and it turned out to be just fine. Now, and I think that's where you're headed, now I find that I want to work again on things I want to work on. Uh, The Most Immediate is a play that I just did in Chicago at the Goodman that Carol Burnett and her daughter wrote, and it's called Hollywood Arms, and I love it dearly, and so did Chicago, which is really nice, and I want to bring it to New York. Simultaneously, I've been working on a new musical with Sondheim, and john weidman called gold sondheim weidman and i did a show years ago called pacific overtures which i love plenty which lost all its money and which i would i would say obviously we always knew would lose all its money but such a good theater where you can say i'm going to do follies it's going to lose its money i'm going to do pacific overtures it's going to lose its money but they're going to make history. And meantime, we're going to make money for our investors elsewhere. So they're intensely proud to be involved with those two productions that lost money, possibly prouder than the ones that paid them back. And that's precisely the experience as we had it. Anyway, I thought, I want to do this stuff, and I don't want seven people looking over my shoulder. But even more, I've spent a lot of time the last number of years watching people do it in a way very different from the way I did it. And I thought, why don't I go back and try it? It's second childhood time, I guess. So I'm going back into producing. And uh, frankly, the way I described it is exactly the way I'm doing it. I'm going to put together 150 or 175 people who want to be in in, in shows who love more the experience of being part of it than sitting there waiting for the the prophets to come back. And most important, don't insist in seeing their names over the title of the play, because as far as I'm concerned, there's something obscene about all those people with their names over the title pretending to be Creative producers who are really nothing more than investors. And I, I thought of, I think of this, I think, you know how, how uh, when you get off the plane in London, they give you that little slip and you write down occupation. And I thought, well, it solved the problem of 24 people or whatever on that show I saw. <laughs> they could write down theatrical producer, but they should know better. So that's where I come from. Anyway. Right. We're going to open it up to the house, because we really want to make sure that you have
1: enough time. So, raise hands. Actually, it's very hard to see all of you. We can't the lights, see. That's very hard the to problem. see. So, if you could bring up house lights. But in the meantime, that would be it. nice. Anyway. <laughs> yes?
3: Uh, you said that collaboration got uh, easier over the past 20 years. Um, why, why was that?
2: Got what? The collaboration got easier. Oh, only because I got more and more to be that two-ton gorilla I was talking about. I was just making a point. I was just making a point. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a terrible responsibility to, to have a reputation and walk into the room and think, oh, my God, they're going to think I'm right. You know what I mean? Uh, because I'm I'm not always right. There's no such thing as a rubber stamp on anybody's ideas. Uh, I I think I want to say this. I think I'm... Extremely careful not to bully people. Uh, I have a memory of when I was bullied, though it wasn't very frequent. But I think you can't take advantage of your experience and your reputation to close the door on what might be the most valuable ideas you're proffered. You know what I mean? Yes? You spoke earlier about the mentorship aspect of the developing theater. A lot of producers in New York and other
3: commercial producers have interns to people that come up in the ranks, but they turn out being not being so much creative as private copies of, the, of their their bosses. What do you think is an alternative
2: for other producers that can obviously take this commercial group? Commercial wow. It's a good question, because You probably realize I've thought about it a lot, uh, which is how to get producers out there who are creative again. Uh, I had what I thought was a smashing idea, which was that the people with all the money should set up little groups, entities within their organizations of young, creative producers. Give them the money to have a small office and a secretary, and a telephone, and seed money to create shows. We talk about musicals. Uh, I thought it was a foolproof idea. I thought if you were running one of the great theatrical organizations, to have five young Turks sitting in, a room, in rooms creating shows, you've got one. One will pay for the other four, and more, if, when it works. And I thought, what a nice way to to, to uh, nurture the future. Uh, I presented the idea. I've been presenting it ad nauseum for the last five years or more. And I'll tell you why it's rejected. No one wants to acknowledge that they don't know about all that. They want to believe they actually produced these shows. You know what I mean? And they didn't. I think... I think coming up through the ranks of of a producing organization is probably kind of a dead end. I think the thing to do is to create a piece of material by one means or another that someone has to have. And then your price is, I want to be a a producer on this, a co-producer on it. I found it. I nurtured it. I developed it. Now, there are wonderful composers, lyricists, librettists out there. There really are. They're all over the place. Uh, basically, what there aren't are people who are have the time, patience, opportunity to put them together and create a project. But I'll tell you right now, I'm very firmly convinced that a a worthwhile project will get a voice and and find its way to, uh, to money. And yes, it might be a partnership of a creative producer and a guy with a lot of money, but then your reputation's there, then you can go on from there, or whoever he is can go on from there, because he's the one who developed the project. I think that's a better way than to do it coming up through the ranks of producing organizations today. I don't, I don't think they're interested in any of this.
1: It's interesting. The one commercial producer really did try to follow your lead was Drabinsky.
2: Really attempted up in Toronto to do exactly and what you described. He a- absolutely did, and he, and he knew who I was, and, and, and he, was, he wanted to know me, and he wanted to, to find out how that all worked, and he did it. He got too big too quickly, and he went somewhere, this is a question no one asked, he went somewhere that he had a businessman's head on as well. I'd like to have severed that from from the creative producer's head, because he was huge and wildly talented, but he also wanted to build theaters. You know, a lot of people don't know, Siegfeld's probably the most famous producer in the in the the history of musical theater in in our country. And and I I assume there's no one in this room that doesn't know that aside from the Ziegfeld Follies, he was the producer of Showboat, which is probably the greatest American musical ever written to this day. Anyway, Ziegfeld also wanted to own it all. And Ziegfeld died broke. There's there's a certain, there's a place where, where that kind of elephantiasis or you know elephantism, I'm picking up a lot of it's words. Okay. I Go, can't ahead. Speak. Go ahead. Uh, there's no translation. There's no translation. Uh, where that basically uh, gets you into terrible trouble. You need you need to keep some modest parameters around the act of creativity. Well, you really do. Real estate and theater were separated
1: in terms of management for decades, and then came back again when the Schuberts began to produce work in the 70s and 80s to fill their own space. Right.
2: They, they. uh, (laughs) If you're a theater owner, with with, someone once said to me, "Don't own one theater." I don't think I'm here to discuss this, but one theater you must always own a couple you got to play them off against each other but if you got a couple or three or four or better five it's a very good business <laughs> because there are still and particularly in today's business a lot of people who are willing to put shows in theaters to see their names over the title and when that show tanks and a lot of them do more of them do than don't there's another show waiting to go into that theater put its name over the title, can be quite a good business, owning a theater. (laughs) Other questions?
3: There. Hi. I'm I'm a director primarily, but as a director, I have written written some musicals, um, a couple of which I've produced, and I've been working on one, the Mark Twain adaptation, for a long time. I've had a hard time finding a composer for it. And also know that A, I want to direct it, that's why I adapted it. So I don't want to give it to another director, but I would like to find either a composer or a uh, choreographer or perhaps some kind of dramaturge if there's one around that I could bounce off of because I, I sometimes I know it needs cutting, but I just because I'm so close to it. Hard for me to see that. At the same time, I don't want to give it away
2: that's No, don't give it away. It sounds to me, though, that there's no or there. You need a composer. Yeah. It's a musical. Right. You don't need a dra-
3: <laughs> you don't need a
2: dramaturg. You don't write unless you get a nice dramaturg who writes good music. But <laughs> well, you don't, you know, I'm not making fun. I'm just saying your priority is find a composer. Uh, as far as bouncing off your ideas on someone, I don't think dramaturgs are the answer. Dramaturgs are a very recent, well, not in your lives. In mine, they're a relatively recent invention, and I don't understand them. And that could be put down as, as some old fogies not understanding what they do in regional theaters but I do understand what they do I just did a play in a regional theater and the dramaturg could not have been nicer he came up to me the first day of rehearsal and said I'm the dramaturg here if I can ever be helpful and I said thank you very much and I'm sure he's very talented but that's my responsibility (laughs) I'm the director you know what I mean so I don't get it I think oddly enough it's the beginning of giving off the producer's responsibility to another artistic entity. The producer should be the dramaturg. And a combination of the producer and the director should fill that bill. I know I don't make a lot of friends there. Too many dramaturgs out there to like that. But I don't believe in it. now. Because I think the dramaturg is rather closer to a critic or an academic. Well, it's all the legacy of Tynan. There's it a, all comes from Tynan and the National Theatre, really. Yeah, absolutely. Ken Tynan was a writer, and a very good one. And he had taste. But that ain't it. I think, uh, I think you better find a composer. And do you know how to find a composer? Have you been reluctant to find one or have you just, you know, access to them?
3: I, I have put out some emails and uh, looked at different places and I've got some awful tapes. Awful. Awful ones. And I've actually I've been contacted a few people who are uh, big in the
2: business. And You've got a book. You like it. There are, this is called networking. There are probably a dozen, at least, composers whose names you can find very easily. Not on email, not on that, but you read about them all the time. I mean, I, you know, the Ricky and Gordons, and the uh, now Jason Brown is sort of established, but Rick, Ricky is too. But they're on their way. Uh, 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 John Bacchino, uh Adam Green, Ries- Adam Gettle—they're all out there. What I'm really trying to say is if you if you find those names, and I've just given you, uh, you know, 2% of what's out there, and you send your book to a young composer uh, who you've heard about in his work, you know, uh, you'll get a response. They're all sitting around desperately looking for something to write. And a lot of the not-for-profit theaters in the city have
1: musical theater labs, whether it's the Beaumont or the Vineyard, I mean, there are really dozens, dozens of musical
2: theater labs they're also there are also there's there's uh, NYU there's there's uh, uh, ASCAP BMI and and uh, uh, there's the uh, Dramatist Guild all these places are working on uh, workshop musicals they all have because of the nature of who they are they have many more composers who they want to put into a collaboration with a book writer, then they have book writers. Book writers are harder to find for a simple reason. Very often, book writers want to be playwrights and until they suddenly say, wait a minute, I'd love to write a musical. It's not snobbery, it's just the way that takes you. So anyone who's writing a book is so intensely needed in the musical theater game because not too many people do, and not too many people want to or can. But find the composer, and find him that way, by reading your newspaper and seeing who's writing, and sending him the thing. Or saying, can I have a cup of coffee with you? I've written something. All you can lose here is a half hour of coffee time and, and whatever time it takes you to read my script. But this is what I want, and I think you're terrific. It's easy to have access to them. It really is. Because they're looking for you. They just don't know where to look. Do you have a copy of the Dramatist source book? Uh, Good.
3: Yeah. I, I, okay, because
1: I, I, a lot of the... In terms of the theaters themselves, a lot of the names and numbers are
2: there. I mean, I,
3: I'm, a, I'm a member of the Dramatist Guild, so I to mean, get uh,
2: a new one, but... Now, when you get it... All right, here's something you probably don't know about. I have a, an organization uh, that... Uh, it's an adjunct of something called the director's company they have a a wing that's called the Hal Prince musical theater wing of the director's company basically it's a company that looks for directors to establish directors uh... when i agreed to try to find musical theater directors and nurture those experiences i said you know directing existent material is only half the exercise the other half is nurturing brand new material so it becomes existing material in other words directing a little night music is just fine only guess what i did it and it took three years to get the material there so i could do it so if you want to direct it please go ahead it's worth it it's valuable but you're not going to create it you're going to recreate it it's my feeling that this director's company should and, and has have looked for new books, new music, new lyrics, and put them together with new directors. Sometimes they came with a new director, or the, or the new director brought in the composer. But it, it was a struggle. However, last year, we five of our musicals premiered in five major regional theaters Steppenwolf Sarah Schlesinger wrote the score for something called The Ballad of Little Joe they did it at Steppenwolf she's now head of the musical theater department at the Tisch School Uh, Robert Nassif, whom you won't know is a composer I found, he was writing a musical with a guy named Peter Julian. it was based on uh, uh, Eliot Ness uh, I liked it we put it into the program my job by the way is simply to go in and criticize easiest job in the world you bring it in I criticize you go away and either you're the dramaturg what? you're I'm the dramaturg
3: dramatur.
2: <laughs> I'm the dramaturg he's absolutely right but anyway what happens is we take it through from the writing to the first reading to the first workshop, a really staged workshop, and then it, it's seen, we have a theater with 100 seats, people come, and it, they go out there. The point is, Nassif, whom I met through that, wrote then, at my request, a one-act musical for three musicals that I sort of shepherded called Three, which we did in Philadelphia, and then at the Amundsen, and got swell review from the New York Times, Nassif then wrote the, the incidental music for the play I've just done in Chicago, and now he and that partner are making a full-length musical of the one that I did two years ago, uh, hopefully for here, for New York, or for an off-Broadway a regional theater. But it's a full-length musical. So his career is going well. There were three others. All of those featured composers, book writers, lyricists, who are on their way. So the director's company is worth knowing about. And if you have your script and you believe in your script, send it to them and say, I cannot go beyond this. I heard Hal, and he said, and I asked, how do I find a composer? And he said, how do I find a composer? I'm serious. That's what they have is that possibility. Yes.
3: It seems to me, and this is my taste in everything, but that Broadway musicals are getting more and more the same and somewhere or other there's gonna to have to be a way to develop them in regionals, but they're so intensive capital.
2: I said, uh, I hate to be self-referential, but I <laughs> but I answered your question. I said, I believe don't sell audiences short. I'm trying to remember exactly. Don't sell them short. They are open to innovation, courage, even danger. And I said, everything that we do in the future will be judged by how quickly we serve an audience that is open to the new, the fresh. And we do that by bringing new voices into the musical theater. It went down pretty well, actually. I thought it would be some sort of (laughs) message, but I could feel something supportive in Radio City Music Hall yet from that message. Uh, I do agree with you, but I don't think the situation can stay this way because I don't even see the encouragement from the business that these musicals you're talking about, these sort of rehashed. I don't think they're doing well enough to engender future support from the people with the money. So it's my personal feeling, the first guy, we're going to be in the dark soon. Uh, What's happening? happening. I think, uh, I, I want to hear what you're going to say, but I really honestly think that the minute somebody brings in, after all, the first musical that Steve and I did together was Company, and it was then followed by a decade of rather innovative stuff. We're waiting for that musical from someone else to come along.
3: So what I, my question was how do we put in the infrastructure so that people can afford to write for regional theater? And that a show, a musical, could happen in regional theater without necessarily being on Broadway? Because to me, Broadway's so thinking more about tourists who don't speak English who are going to see a show because it's
2: Okay, but it can't be that, you realize. I have an intense desire that we save Broadway. Because. Uh, what you, but the reason we have to say Broadway is for you. The reason we... I don't even know what you do, but I'm telling you right now. We have to say Broadway because it's its our window for the world. And wonderful stuff can be done out there somewhere. The, the three one-act musicals I described to you were really terrific. But also... And you know, I... Put, with, with, with the three young composers, involved three composers... Three composers, three lyricists, three librettists, three new choreographers, one of whom just won a Tony... Right last sunday night and by having
1: three move to a number of not-for-profit theaters
2: those young artists did very well but we couldn't come to broadway that's your point too we couldn't come to broadway because they said we don't know how to market them and i said the fact that audiences adore them doesn't matter we don't know how to sell them we don't know how to my favorite word today is brand or is it my unfavorite word we don't know how to brand them the point is yes you can do that work and you must do that work anywhere you can do that work and you're asking how do you do it it seems to me I just told you about a new musical at Steppenwolf I just told you about another new new musical the Cleveland Playhouse none of those had the imprimatur of a star director or star writers the theaters out there will do them they really will and you'll learn from the experience they've got To get here the audience deserves it the sort of nice global mentality the audience all over the world deserves what American musicals are competent of capable of and we deserve it and you know what else you deserve you deserve to make a living and that's something that people have lost sight of we all made a living working on Broadway in New York and there's something else you should take into account. There, there are a lot of artists, but it's not countless. And first-rate artists, there are 20 first-rate this, 20 first-rate that, 50 maybe, I doubt 50. I'm talking about real creative minds. And when they find each other, wonderful things happen when those sparks they give up sparks that's what forgive me self-referential again that's what one of my favorite shows was about Follies it was about everybody working at the height of their capability now we're all living in New York it's easy if we were in Detroit three of the five figures wouldn't be there so you would start the compromise process. But in this case, we had Boris Aronson, Florence Klotz, Sondheim, and so on. So I really think we have to protect New York, not be snobby about New York, but I do promise you, you can get work done elsewhere. You really can. There are too many now. It's hard to take the time to tell you all the avenues if the work's good. Of course. Yes.
3: Hi. Um, I'm a director and choreographer. I'm also the artistic director of a public um, theater company that creates and develops new plays and musicals. We're constantly working on the developmental process of new work and we're always trying to evaluate that and see what works for each other. What do you think is the best, what are the elements that are necessary in the development?
2: Will you clarify the question for me? I have a little trouble hearing that. So, what,
1: just speak up. Just go no, you me. tell me. Oh, okay. What's, what's necessary
2: in putting the pieces together and the collaboration for a, a new young theater under your circumstances, under the under the under somewhat limiting circumstances of a or not?
3: Well, I mean, we're limited obviously financially because we're a small nonprofit theater we're working with different composers and lyricists and book writers
2: and we're trying to develop, we're looking at know, We do readings, we do stage readings, we do concepts. What's it called? It's an easy issue. It's a hard question to answer because what you just did was put a certain amount of of frustration in my lap about, you know, I can imagine it from your point of view. Uh, How how much outreach do you make do i hear from you you do
3: and you received an award from this a few years ago <laughs> uh, the genie award yeah right i was sitting
2: on your on your powder okay i was also
3: one of really
2: early director's, the directing company i worked
3: on Pandora.
2: okay i well there's a good there's a, a very good example of a show that got some legs I believe it went as far probably as it should go. I don't know. But I never could quite figure out how it could go beyond that. But I was always fascinated by it. And you have to admit, it did not go un- unobserved. By the way, I couldn't hear the name. I have trouble hearing. So that's why I didn't connect with what you were saying. It's really it's really about hearing. Uh, well, then you did reach me. Okay. What else can I say? I. Uh, I think we're starving for new voices. I think something very interesting happened. There are a lot of choreographers in here, I'm assuming, or a bunch of them. I, I think what happened the other night with Rob Ashford was stunning and a complete surprise to him. Not, to mention, <laughs> not I was standing off stage when he came off because I followed him a few minutes later. i have never seen anybody so polack. I mean, he was totally stunned. Then so was I. On the other hand, my wife went to see the show when I was in Chicago, and she said, I just saw Rob's show, and his work is really good. And it, it's it's working a road, that, a path that's been so overworked. How did he find a language for it that could make you say, wait a minute? That's really terrific stuff. <clears throat> so I. minute I got back to New York next day I went to see the show and she was dead right did I think that that they would know that last Sunday night not remotely was I pleased that they did you bet a lot of people went into a theater and sat down and said there's a new voice there's somebody who has something else to say now, he did one of the three one-acts uh, a year earlier, and he was the assistant choreographer on Kiss the Spider Woman, and he went to, we all went to uh, uh, Argentina, where he put it on. So I really do know it, but I did not know he was that capable. I will say this, and I'm saying it, boy, I'm saying it for a reason which maybe you'll, Uh, will bypass some of what I'm saying. And that is, I got a call from Michael Mayer, the director, saying I'm looking for a young choreographer. Do you know anyone? And I said, have you ever heard of Rob Ashford? And he said no. And he brought him in, and he gave him the show, and Ashford got the Tony, and and Michael Mayer said at the... (coughs) drama desk, Uh, thanks, Hal Prince, for introducing me. Uh, That is referential. It's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is by getting out there and getting, you never know who's watching. You never know when that phone's going to ring and somebody's going to say, what about that guy? Or a lady. Or a girl. No such thing as ladies. And part of the problem that you're facing (laughs) Part of the problem you're
1: facing is economic, because when the Broadway economy began to change in the 60s in a serious way, it was the same moment when there was a lot of money available mostly through government sources for new not-for-profit theaters. And Barbara Houghton and I were a part of all of that. And there was a tremendous amount of money, especially in New York State. And this was the era of Governor Rockefeller Sun King, and money flowed through the New York State Council. I'll just give you one example. People wonder, how did Joe Papp ever produce all those plays down at the public? When that thing was, how did he do it? Um, I won't play a guessing game with you, but Joe's annual grant in 1975, and really throughout the 70s, from just the New York State Council on the Arts, in pre-OPEC dollars, Joe was getting $750,000 a year from one grant. So, when you look at what was going on at La Mama, you look at what was going on at the Shakespeare Festival, you look at a, a, a just barely emerging Manhattan Theater Club getting a quarter million dollars a year out of the state of New York, it was a different economy. What's happened since then is that the government support for the arts has just collapsed down to truly minimal levels, and the commercial theater has continued on the road that was set for it back in the late 60s. So, so you're, you get locked out in both ends. So it's partly an economic problem, but you just have to
2: play through it to use the jazz term. But you also have to acknowledge what he's just said and what you were getting at. You have to acknowledge that innovative work will come from some collaboration with not-for-profit theater. There's no other way it can happen. And I even recognize that. I'm doing the Sondheim show uh, at the Goodman. I want to do what I want to do, and uh, that's that's what we're talking about. So I mean, basically, uh, th- thank God for it. It's been amazing, and it's still in place. It really is still in place. It's harder for them, but the it meaning the not-for-profit theaters, well, the not-for-profit theaters. Of course, the 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 Broadway theater is not going to provide that. But you you really should know something. It didn't provide it in 1970 which seems like yesterday to me but clearly not to you uh it didn't provide it then we simply went on our own path and it worked and when it worked once it worked the second time thank god so it kept working luck lots of luck and sure some talent but a lot of luck as well so we were able to have a movement that that you were asking about, where does that still, where's that opportunity exist? We made that opportunity. Believe me, what was happening around us was musicals that you might think are pretty old-fashioned and pretty much shaped by a cookie cutter. It's always been us in the commercial arts. Another, I'm sorry, whoever I said, there are no... Ladies, I meant with women. I just want to use the word ladies. So prompt. <laughs> There's no trans. I heard I a voice. No what about women? And I thought, he's right. Anyway, straight back there. Uh, has, has the economic situation uh, forced us uh, so far into the quote-unquote system that
3: audiences will not go back?
2: Anymore? No. No, I honestly don't believe it. I can only tell you that... That, too, hasn't changed. In 1957, I produced West Side Story. It got okay reviews, not all that good. It never sold out. The show that got great reviews, won every award, and sold out was The Music Man, a very good piece of material, but not West Side Story, not remotely. And we were all aware of it. It paid back because the uh, economics of the day were such that you could. They made a movie out of it, and that made everybody rich. But why did it make everybody rich? Because the public was ahead of the critics. If the critics had seen what the public had, and that's really the point I was making earlier on, public is damn smart. And the public doesn't, all right, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the graduate
3: is doing very well. <laughs>
2: there have always been such, yeah, always, productions. Honest to God, there have always been stars who've come onto the stage. No one remembers what they were in or what happened. But that's really not
1: what it's about. It really isn't. You know, there was a passing reference to something in Variety this week. I was really amazed, not, not a fact of it, but just that, it, it, literally a passing reference that after five years of weekly million dollar grosses, the Lion King is at last in the black. Now that's
2: insane. Is
1: that insane? That's insane. You know,
2: please. That's right. nuts. Because the running costs are so extreme, that's, that's, it has finally, yeah. finally, that's, finally that's, that's insane. But, uh, and you know, but to, to go there, I can top that one. <laughs> I did Sweeney Todd, and it closed <laughs> after a year and a half, and I'm uh, uh, very proud of it, but it paid off its investment 11 years later. Ancillary productions and so on. Doesn't matter what pays off. They don't all have to pay off either while we're at it. That's the point. You can't possibly create anything worthwhile if it has to pay off. But you have to be practical enough, if there are any pro- Monke producers in here, to pay off once in a while. I mean it's just practical thinking that's all and you as artists have to have unless you want to be someone who really wants to equate himself with something that isn't popular every once in a while to do something that people come to see you can figure that out without selling your soul to the devil you can figure that out I strongly recommend everybody in this room the appendix
1: that is in Hal's biography because he had the nerve and the generosity to share with his readers a chart that shows everything he produced, from beginning to Candide. And it shows the profit and loss statements. And it's an illustration of exactly what he's talking about. Some things did incredibly well. Some things did badly. Some things were financially not successful, but artistically very successful. And it balanced out for his investors over time, which Part of what you get from that incredible chart at the back of that book is the sense of this loyal relationship between a producer and a director and the investors, that people were in it for the long haul, not just for
2: one project. I'm trying to do it again. I'm trying to get out there with those people so they really care about the show, not the return on the show. And honestly, the more investment financially they have, the more pressure there is on them to worry about the return. That's all I'm trying to do. It's very, very simple. Want to bet on it? Let's see what happens. But Bet on something you're proud of. I would like to say one more thing because uh, I think it's time. I'm going to see a show. Right. Oh,
1: well, we got we have more five more minutes. We have five more minutes. One more
2: question. Right. One and more thing I want to be waving waving way back. All right. Then. Let me just okay. say one thing because I think uh, this is noble and it should be shared. It's not mine. It's my wife's. Somewhere in... It, it, we're married almost 40 years, but somewhere around 20 years ago, she got really pissed off at me. And uh, it's because I was referring to uh, uh, failures. And, and she said, do you consider follies a failure? And I said, well, no. It's one of the best things I ever was associated with. Uh, do you consider Pacific Overtures a failure? Same answer. She said, will you, for God's sakes... From now on and for the rest of your life, make the distinction between hit and flop and success and failure. I was so grateful for it, it's a mantra now. We know what a hit is, it makes money. We know what a flop is, it loses money. But a success doesn't have to make money, and a failure can make money. And you just right. got to get that so in there. It's an
1: important concept. That's my wife you're clapping for. Go ahead, one more question. That, that really should be the end, except
2: this person is No! Leader. So, go ahead. Yeah. I, I can't stop that. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to throw it out anyway. I just want to thank you for being here. It's an honor for me to,
3: uh, to attend this tonight. I a practical question about leadership in directing, and uh, is this uh, a delicate balance? Producer and the director.
2: But how much, of a, uh, how much of a business person do you have to be as a director? Uh, leadership,
0: motivation.
2: I love the question. I love the question. And I'll tell you something. I owe it to the fact that I was forced to be a producer before I was a director. But working with Jerry Robbins was rather profligate. He wanted Jerry Robbins' happiest dream in the world would have been make all those costumes, throw them out, let's make another set. Which obviously doesn't work, you know what I mean? But basically, I always aware, I think I was his happiest collaboration as a producer because every time he asked for something, he respected that I had a creative capacity. So I would go home, I would think about it, and I would say yes or no based on the best way I could judge whether it was artistically valuable. <coughs> I became a director, and I had a right hand who just died this year, named Ruth Mitchell, and she was my associate producer, but also my right hand. I, she forced that on me. She became me. So I would say, after all, I was dealing with the money as well as the direction. I would say, I want those, whatever, that effect. I want that new costume. And she would always say, would you have given it to Jerry (laughs) Robbins? And I would always stop, and then I would judge it by those values. It is not wise to be a self-indulgent, spoiled artist. It is wise to look at creativity as your work. Just as it's wise, boy, I'm going to end on boring. Boy, is it wise to show up at a 10 o'clock rehearsal at 5 of 10 and to keep whatever angst you have, whatever fears you have, to yourself and to give people the support that they need. You're telling them where to go and what to do. And you know what else? It's wise to be honest. I think this, I'd like to end on these. If you don't know what you're doing, tell them. And if you do it wrong one day, come in the next day and say, "I really fucked up yesterday. I just forget everything I did." And you know what? It's that there there's your relationship is established with your collaborators. Be honest. They know you fucked up.
0: Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.